Welcome to Rock's Fall and Everyone Dies Wine and Spirits Edition. This is the Coffee Corner with Greg. And this is December. And I will be interviewing our DM, Scott. And I guess we'll start off with what is your preferred pronoun? Preferably go by he, him. All right, cool. So I guess. Or two, December. Oh, 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 yeah, true. I should probably give that. My preferred pronouns are she, her. All right. So this is a question that I actually ask basically everyone I interview. And I feel like it's a really important question, especially for the fact that I'm talking to someone who's not from the pizza belt. Oh, all right. All right. Is Chicago style deep dish pizza actually pizza? I believe in the constellation that is pizza. I believe most food groups are constellations of items rather than any specific thing. Like, oh, deep dish is not pizza. Like, I personally prefer my cheese to be on top of the sauce. I personally like a thin crust, but I will not deny the Chicagoans or the Chicagans. I'm not 100% certain of that. That's a good question. I'm not sure either. <laughs> and I lived in Illinois. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not 100% sure. Like, uh, yeah, but anyway, I will not deny them their attempt at pizza in the same way that I will not deny the Japanese uh, their version of pizza, which includes like raw eggs or uh, squid ink. Or I, I, there's all kinds of weird stuff that everybody across the world, everybody has a different definition of pizza. But I will say this, I like a New York style pizza, but I like a sweeter sauce. I know that's a little weird. And oh, as far as toppings go, I like broccoli as a topping, believe it or not. It's uh, especially when it's like slightly underdone, it's got that nice crunch to it. I mean, it's not pineapple, so I can't really say anything. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> um, so broccoli pizza, so is it, do you like like a white pie, like where it has like that white sauce with broccoli or like traditional pie with broccoli on it? I like a traditional pie, but I, okay. So there's this place where I, um, in, in Miami in North Miami, it's called Steve's pizza. And there's thousands of Steve's pizzas across the country, but this place is like its own thing. It's not a franchise. It's just this one little pizza shop. It's got tons of graffiti on the wall and it's a tiny little place, but this place, Steve's pizza, I have never found any other pizza place that, that makes a sweet sauce like this fairly standard dough. It's not super crunchy crust and not super doughy. It's, it's a well-made pizza. They've got this sweet tomato sauce that goes on the pie and then they put cheese and whatever toppings. My preferred go-to pizza there is a broccoli and sausage pizza. I find pepperoni to be a little too greasy for me. A lot of that like orange grease. I dab with a napkin if there's too much grease on my pizza. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel you on that. Cause you don't want like, um, Sometimes when it, the pizza is too greasy, it gets like floppy. Yeah. Especially if the, the crust isn't crispy enough and it just like you pick it up and it just drops and droops and that's just no. Right. That's a whole lot of no. I mean, I fold my pizza and when I'm about like halfway through, I'll tap the backside of the pizza on the plate and leave like these orange spots on there. I know so many more people does this and will never admit it, but I, a believer in the constellation that is pizza, <laughs> will attest that I will tap the grease off of my pizza. Just just to go back to that sausage, because this is obviously super important to our D&D &D game. Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, is it like a sweet sausage? 
Just like the sauce or is it like a The sausage is a, uh, it's regular pizza sausage. It's clearly like sausage, like links that have been sliced like long ways or like angular. They're not super thin. Although, wait, hold on. Oh gosh, it's been so long because this place <laughs> is in Florida and I'm in New Jersey now. Jeez, You're in the on. pizza belt. <laughs> I'm in the pizza belt. But here's the thing. I found a place that treats the toppings the same way as Steve's. Like I found my place that I like here that has like the same crunch to the broccoli and the sausage bits are thicker here. But I think the sausage at Steve's was always like thin sliced, mm-hmm. like more like a hero, whatever that hero meat is called. I can't, can't remember for the life of me. Do you mean like cold cut hero or like- no, 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 no. Where they shave off the meat on the skewer. Okay. Yeah. I can never say it correctly. I think it's gyro. Is that right? I think it's hero. Again, we don't know. And we'll never know. <laughs> we will never know. I'm sure that we will get 100 people tweeting at us. Or more specifically, you will get 100 people tweeting oh, at us. Oh, yeah, 100%. Uh, like, you're wrong. And and you know what? But we can never find out because we don't have the internet. <laughs> we right. can't look up a pronunciation. <laughs> well, even if we use the internet, I think this is one of those hotly debated topics on the internet. I think this is its own Twitter war. Yeah, good point. Like, I know what you're talking about, and it's delicious. It's like the meat that's been stacked up and it's like on a spit and it spins around and they cut it off. And it's and so every part, every side of it is cooked. It's delicious. My apologies to any vegans out there. And like a lot of people call it a gyro, but I know that's not correct. <laughs> yeah, I've been admonished for calling it a gyro. So I call it a hero now, but then I've also been admonished for calling it a hero. I don't know. Is it like Chinese where like the inflection is important? Is it hero or hero? Is the inflection super important for the pronunciation? I'm not sure. (laughs) Um, We're we're getting on really controversial topics, though. Yes. This is definitely the most controversial interview I've ever. Oh my goodness! (laughs) I'm I'm glad to hold that title after talking about pizza and heroes and Chicagoans or Chicagoans. We're really like this is definitely full of controversy, hot takes. Well, I know this. We've completely <laughs> lost all of our listeners from the greater Chicago area. I know. <laughs> I know they're very angry, but we didn't no one so far has said that Chicago pizza isn't pizza, so they should be grateful. <laughs> <laughs> this, yes. I've now lost everyone else in the Midwest. Oh um, no. You might have just lost New Yorkers too. Oh, that's true. Did we ever have them? <laughs> that's a very good question. Does anybody ever really have New Yorkers? Uh <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's – I was going to say there's a bunch of people from New Jersey, but that's not true. It's all people from Florida. It's – we've got Lena, who's from New York, New York, me, who's from Jersey. You're from Florida. I know Tommy and Jin are from Florida with me because I taught them. <laughs> right, yeah. So you have the Gator listeners. Oh, boy. Now, there's a controversy <laughs> all its own. The, the UM versus the versus uh, Florida State. Oh God, editor's note. Uh, Gators are University of Florida, not FSU. They are rivals. I am so sorry. Please do not be mad at me, Gators fans. That is its own separate controversy, which I am not adequately, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I am not adequately sported to comment on because I do not care for sports in general. And now I've lost all the sports fans. <laughs> So we have all all three listeners that are left. <laughs> yes. For the three of you, thank you for sticking with us. Yeah, thanks. I will promise to try and not offend you. We probably will offend you. I will find some <laughs> way. I'm sure of it. 
<laughs> All right. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit and I'm going to sure. actually talk about D&D. Ooh. Because it turns out, and I didn't realize this going into this, that, that our podcast is about D&D. What do you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so I guess I, I, I wonder, how did you get into D&D? I'm not 100% sure what order these our Wine and Spirits Edition episodes are going to air. So, uh, so I may have talked about this or I may not have talked about this. I don't know. I got into D&D in college. I started off going to the Anime and Manga Society Club. And a lot of the members of that club had a D&D game that they played in the common room in the dorm once a week on Saturday nights. And it just so happened that the person who who led that club, who was like the main DM for it, was on the same floor in the same building as me for the dorm. So I basically came over one night uh, and just hung out and watched the first game. Now, apparently I had played D&D before this in like the original rules way back in the day, but that isn't a super clear memory for me because none of us really knew what we were doing. Um, I didn't know any of the people particularly well, but I do remember rolling very strange shaped dice and there being swords and fantasy. And I liked that about it, but it just wasn't like, eh, it was, it was a board game. But I came to D&D and... I didn't really have a lot of friends in general. I wasn't really part of a social group. And as soon as I started sitting down and watching, everybody was was laughing and talking and they were interacting with each other over a rule set that I could understand. Generally speaking, I'm still not very good at the social thing. I've learned to fake it considerably better, but I've never been particularly good at the social stuff. And this seemed like a way to be in a group and be with people without needing to follow the regular rules that I didn't understand. At the time, we were playing 3.5 edition. So there was a lot of rules, just a lot of rules. There were over 50 supplement books for this, for this edition and hundreds of articles of Dragon Magazine and Dragon Plus, which had additional rules and feats and things like that. And after a while, I just got really deep into learning and gaming the system. So it gave me a context to have a social interaction without needing to follow regular social rules where, oh, you're supposed to look people in the eye, you're supposed to smile, you're supposed to inflect your voice a certain way, and then people will like you. Like, I never understood that crap. I still don't. <laughs> but, but this, if I could play the game... If I could be good at the game, then I would have every right to sit at the table with these other people who were friends as everyone else. And eventually it became more about hanging out with the friend group than playing the game. Of course, I still really enjoyed the mechanics of 3.5 and building characters in it and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. But D&D allowed me to be social, whereas I had never really been able to be social that way before, ever, with anyone. So that's one of the reasons why I got into D&D and I stayed with it. It's great. It allows someone like me to be social. Yeah. I, you know what? It's really interesting that you, you kind of are talking about this as like D&D as a way to become social for people who aren't traditionally social or, or who have had issues with being social because I've actually read a lot of stories that about how D&D is kind of that, that outlet, which becomes almost a middle ground for people. 
And I find that really fascinating because I never thought of it that way. I kind of, I always thought of it as like, mm, kind of being intimidating, but at the same time, it seems to me like, and I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong. It's almost a way that's less intimidating for people who may have difficulties with socializing. I have experienced it that way. Now, it always depends on the social group that you're with, mm-hmm. how intimidating it is. I've heard stories about social groups that just like haze new people. And mm. I'm lucky that I've never really had that experience personally. But in general, I know that there are companies out there and there are uh, organizations that use D&D and similar rule sets for uh, therapy uh, for kids who are on the spectrum and uh, teaching them social skills and teaching them how to interact with other people and how to empathize and how to sort of step out of themselves and say, all right, now it's not about what little Timmy would do. It's about what Thragnar would do. How would Thraknar respond in this situation? This person is crying in front of you. What would Thraknar do? Thraknar, who is a socially engaged and uh, Lothario type of personality, what would Thraknar do? It's like, oh, Thraknar would do this because of these reasons. Ah, so what can we learn to apply that to how we treat other people? I know that there are companies out there that do that specifically, and there have been an increasing recognition due to the work of other D&D and role-playing internet phenoms that have really boosted that signal. So I, I know that exists, and I know it worked for me. I'm a little older than the age group those things are targeted at, or I was a little older than that age group by the time I started D&D. But it is useful. There are other things that help me emulate social behavior. Like, I was in theater, and um, that helped me fake it better, and it helped me gain inflections in my voice, and how to imitate people, and how to imitate things and people that I've seen, and become a very convincing, almost normal person. <laughs> but Generally speaking, yeah, D&D, it depends on the people that you're learning with, whether it's intimidating or not. I'm not going to make broad generalizations about like, oh, people who play Vampire the Masquerade are more intimidating oh, and they're right. more into LARPers. Or, oh, yeah. LARPers are a different... No, everybody has their outlet and everybody finds their social group. And even if the game isn't perfect for you, the social group you settle into makes it better for you. And the same way that there are a lot of people in social situations, there are always a lot of people in D&D who are different kinds of people. There's some people who enjoy messing with others. There's some people who enjoy arguing or rules lawyering or whatever. And those people have their own niches as well. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I, I guess it kind of speaks to like, or one of the things that it kind of reminds me of is like, in a lot of different subcultures, there is groups who are welcoming because there's this idea of like community for people who don't necessarily feel community in like a mainstream setting or mainstream socialized setting. And this could be said for people who are into cosplay, but there's also people who are gatekeepers sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that always makes me sad, but it's actually really nice to hear that they're using D&D in, in other ways. I'm only aware of them through the media that I consume, yeah. which, yeah, I've never interacted with those groups. Although, if they're interested, uh, reach out to us, please. Yeah. <laughs> We're happy to boost your signal um, in what little way we can. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's a really, like, positive pastime for kids. Not that I really have a lot of experience, but when I worked at, like, summer camps, obviously, this was, like, a few years back, there were some camp counselors who were doing, like, 
modified D games with some of the kids, especially during um, when we had like rainy days. And it was really great because it was a creative outlet for younger kids and it was age appropriate. For me, I see it as something where you're, you're really like flexing your storytelling skills. And that's something that's a, a positive, right? Mm-hmm. Being able to kind of write your own stories and, and be creative. But there is always that element of the dice roll as they may. Right. It's a game. Yeah. Sometimes failures are more interesting than successes. And it, it, it all depends on how you handle it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and that alone can teach resilience. Being able to deal with failure. Right. Is an important skill. I know that for a time back in the old days, there was the whole satanic panic. Right. That's kind of what I'm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm kind of getting at like there is a positive to this because I know there was. Yeah. There are still vestiges of the satanic panic out there of like, oh, that book has the the monster manual is full of devils and demons and and contains names of things that you could summon Mephistopheles or, or various beastly and demonic creatures. But quite frankly, more often than not, I, I don't know what the exact percentages are, but I know that it's more likely for a and d game to revolve around the good guys fighting against the bad guys than bad guys. And even in our game, you guys are technically classified as undead monsters, but you're not bad. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I take that back. Wait, who's bad? Now I want to know. <laughs> what are you trying to say? there's definitely some indiscriminate murder going on (laughs) yeah but it's a matter of what kind of story you want to tell and i desired to tell more personal stories with this campaign basically what happens when you put good people in a situation where they have to do bad things to survive how do they handle it and things like that uh other games that i've run have been like, well, uh, people, there's no good or evil. There's just war all around you. And you have to follow orders until suddenly you're the person giving orders and you have to win. Even if it's not the right thing to do, even if there's innocence that you're attacking, you have to win. Uh, or some of the older games that I was where it was basically like, let's just make the craziest things we can possibly make using all of these crazy rules. And I'll just throw crazy stuff at you. There's a lot of different variations on the themes here. And of course, there's always the standard go-to of, well, you guys are adventurers. Your job is to kill monsters and chew bubble gum. (laughs) There's always the standard go-to hack and slash or murder hobo type scenarios. And these are all terminology that sort of gets passed around in the various D&D subculture. Yeah, actually, can you back up? Did you just say murder hobo? Okay, so murder hobo is a style of play where basically the DM will create this, excuse me. Hmm. Sorry, my chair got caught on something. Oh God, uh, but it's kidding. okay, we'll, we'll leave it in. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so Murder Hobo. Uh, Murder Hobo is a style of play where basically you are this, this bag of vagabonds that just go from town to town killing indiscriminately and then killing monsters, taking their loots and then spending it on yourselves. And basically there is no redeeming quality other than the combat is the fun. Here is monster. Go kill monster. That is the style of play that murder hobo is. And also like you are in town, you can interact with the merchant to get a better price by using skills. Nah, I'm just going to stab him and take all this stuff. Jesus. 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's murder hobo. But then there's also games of extremely important social interactions where there's barely any combat at all. And your job is to uh, sleuth out which noble is trying to knife this other noble or uh, any actual open displays of force will be met with prison time. And, and basically your job is to sneak around and find information. And some people really enjoy that style of play. Other people enjoy the whole, like, here is a contract to go kill this monster. And on the way there, there is all kinds of survival stuff involved where you need to get through a forest or uh, avoid traps or things of that nature. And then there's dungeon crawls where you go into a dungeon, there's traps everywhere and there's monsters in there and there's a uh, final ball. And then you have to go kill a dragon and take its treasure and then getting the treasure back out. Um, how do you carry um, 50,000 pounds of treasure out of a cave? That's the old school style of play where experience was gold. The entire point was to go to a dungeon, kill a dragon, get its treasure, and then return to town. And that's how you leveled up. Wow. Um, that's that's the original D&D concept. So I have a question. Yes. Do you have a favorite style of play? I, hmm. I've changed a lot okay. in the way that I play. In 3.5, I approach the game by trying to create these really like out there characters who are really, really good at one specific thing. And my entire purpose was to basically just do that thing really well. Any situation where I wasn't doing the thing that I do very, very well, I would just sort of muddle through, try and pair it with a completely wacky, interesting personality just to have my fun at the table and make jokes. I still do that from time to time. There are still, uh, and even in fifth edition, there are, there are race class combinations that are very interesting and they present very interesting puzzles of like, how do you do something when you have certain limitations? But in terms of style of play, I really do kind of like tactical combat scenarios where there is a win condition okay you either have to brute force your way to it or you have to come up with a interesting plan and follow through with it and win using your your superior planning i i end up falling back on i just enjoy tactics mm. mostly because i don't have a huge amount of skill in dealing with social situations although creating a character that is hyper uh, focused on one or two different things does create good options for me. But that also depends on what DM you have, because a DM who has a correct answer in mind, but will not be flexible, if you don't do the specific thing that they wanted you to do, then they won't give you the win. Like you can't lateral think your way out of situations with people like that mm. and then there's other dms who are like i'm preparing a monster of the week this is our combat encounter for the evening round one fight <laughs> like you're just dropped in the middle of this and it's like this is the monster right i think the best dm i ever had like personally that i ever that, that i ever played against was the first dm i ever had um his name was also scott that wasn't confusing at all <laughs> I remember that there were dungeons and puzzles, and when combat happened, there were times when we were completely outclassed, and the job was to run away. I remember that kind of thing. That was fun for me. But that was during 3.5, so there was a lot less uh, rule of cool during that time. So I have to ask, what is the rule of cool? 
Okay, Rule of Cool is actually, believe it or not, it, it's under a different name in the Dungeon Master's Guide or in the Player's Handbook or uh, one of the rule books. Basically, it's the Dungeon Master gets to decide whether or not a rule will be followed. All of the rule sets and books and mechanics that are in the D&D books in the game, they are guidelines. You follow those when it suits you. Uh, rather, when the DM can, can alter the rules at any time. My favorite use of the rule of cool is there is a situation that you, the player, are in. You come up with a very interesting and cool solution to that problem that if it's so cool, sometimes a DM will just say, you know what? That's just really, really good. I'm not going to make you roll for it. That's just going to that's just going to be what happens. <laughs> Or in a social interaction is the most common time that that kind of thing is used. Is like, you know what? Normally I would have you roll a persuasion check for this, but you used all the exact perfect right words to play this guy. I'm just going to give it to you. That would 100% work. So it almost like if you're, if you're using that as a DM, it, it kind of rewards ingenuity, which is cool. It does. I, I like the fact that you're able to be flexible with that. Because I think it does make it more interesting. There's two kinds of leveling in 5th edition that I've played with. One is experience leveling, which is classic. You would need this much experience to level. And one of the things that you can use in an XP system is you can reward player ingenuity and fun with bonus experience. A person who plays a bard, them actually writing a poem or actually singing, I would reward with bonus experience. Writing these ideas down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but in our game we're doing milestone leveling, which is after a certain point I am leveling you guys up. Like for example, after I murdered all of you, uh, I gave you guys level 4 because we reached a beat in the story and I wanted to be able to do more stuff during that time. Also to sort of apologize for killing for all of you. For killing us. <laughs> yes. Which kind of brings me to another question. Okay. Who hurt you? <laughs> Why are you so mean? <laughs> uh, so I sort of had this idea for this campaign um, before I ever really had the players for the campaign. And I knew that I wanted to do certain things and I wanted to, to play on certain themes. Like I wanted everyone to be undead and reconciling with themselves what that actually means, like what they have to deal with. And also how they assuage their hunger. Like they have to eat humanoid flesh in order to survive. They're in service of a master who is truly quite evil. And the things that they're asked to do are morally repugnant to them. I knew that that would be good pathos and it would make for an interesting story. But also I didn't want to balance that with not really screwing my characters over. Like one thing that I would hate as a DM is sort of mindlessly killing a character just saying you know what this would be fun let's just kill one character there was one time that i'm not super proud of that i actually tried to do that because mechanically the character was breaking the game and there was like a huge power disparity but the way i should have handled that was talking to the person and asking them how we can modify their character or nerf them in such a way so that they're more on equal footing with everybody else but what i ended up trying to do was i targeted them and that really hurt their feelings. They felt betrayed, and it's not a good way to handle things. So I tried to aim to never do stuff like that again. I wanted to make it so that I didn't create a situation 
where I was ruining a character for a player, where I was making it no longer fun to play. And also, I wanted to give something to you in exchange for murdering you. Like, for example, with Greg, you and I know more about your backstory yeah. than anybody else does. I'm not going to spill any of that here, but I didn't want to cut off the potential story opportunities for Greg in the future. I wanted to create a complication for Greg that would make an interesting story to tell and sort of also play on the backstory that Greg has and make things specifically poignant for that character. In the same way that there are certain things that other characters have to deal with in their own way, like themes of loss and themes of having to do evil things to survive, but still maintaining your goodness. Those sorts of themes really appeal to me for the purposes of this campaign. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to torment you guys, <laughs> although I will, I will, as an offhand comment, say like, oh, uh, yep, I'm just going to be mean. Mean old Scott. Oh, yeah. But everything I'm trying to do, I, I've tried to make it so that your characters feel awesome and they feel difficult. And there's a lot of pain, but there's also a lot of just really cool things about them. Your characters need to feel fun to play. They need to feel cool. Of course, in the case of Greg especially, and they also need to be fun. Right. <laughs> and I think you actually did a really great job at, at balancing things out. Um, oh, thank you. I bow. I yeah, bow. yeah. No, I, and, and I'm being really serious here. Like, I, I think it's it really shows to your storytelling ability and speaks to your storytelling ability that you, first of all, completely completely like we did not see this coming even though you literally pitched it to us as oh do you want to play a game called rocks fall and everyone dies and you were just like in for the ride and didn't like i know i definitely did not realize that this was what was going to happen but even though that this has happened and obviously i asked this question more as a joke if anything i feel like the story itself is still intact is something very compelling and very human. The stakes are still there. It's not like we suddenly being undead has made us these invincible characters and that we're still dealing with these like hardships. So I think you did a good job. Oh, <laughs> um, that means a lot. And, and actually that kind of brings me to another question. Ooh. Because in doing this great job, which I think you are definitely, you should take a bow because I'm serious. Those screams at the end of that episode are real. Um, if we decided to keep them in, oh, wait, we don't. Keep, we're not going to keep those in. Oh well, I don't know because uh, now. <laughs> I don't know because um, we're we're recording this uh, before the episode has aired, and uh, there's always uh, there's always that that decision, that final decision before we air an episode of uh, like, all right, so final cut. So, yeah, um, for, for anybody who's interested, uh, because we are teachers and students, we sort of record on a seasonal schedule where uh, we record everything in one big go and then release it. And then during the school year when we're, you know, teaching and working and learning, there's only so much time that we actually physically have in a day. Yeah. Oh, well, anyway, so it, at the end of that episode, if there isn't screams, there were. <laughs> <laughs> there were screams. There were screams. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess my question is, like, how do you, how did you plan this out? Like, what's your, what's your planning process like? If this was to be considered advice for people who are writing stories for D&D &D, or DMs who are just starting out, I know this is going to sound really hard to follow. 
But essentially, this whole thing started with one strike of inspiration and a concept. And then I just couldn't stop writing things down about it. Before we recorded everything, I had planned out maybe two or three story beats in advance. I needed to know more information about who the characters were and then sort of build an intro sequence for them. But before that, you know what? I'm not going to deal with all that nonsense of like these characters meeting each other uh, organically. They're going to go work for a bank and they're going to go do a job. During the course of that job, they all need to die. And then building out from there, I sort of flesh things out by, all right, well, if they're in the bank, what is the bank doing? How did they get this job? What are the circumstances around that? And then for a while, I was having difficulty writing. I was like, okay, well, uh, if I do that, then uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And then eventually it came to me. I was like, oh, oh, it's contract work. Uh, there's it, And it's some kind of like bank-related thing. So it's just, ah, the, the Platinum Mercenary Program, um, TM. And then I just wrote a little bit of extra flavor text from there. And okay, so who are the people that they meet? And uh, I've got like a couple of documents that are just like a list of all the NPCs that I've that we've made so far or that we've encountered so far or NPCs that you have or haven't met yet that I know about. Also, I have a list of places, of locations, and also important stuff about your home base, like physical descriptions. But I leave things really open after coming up with some very specific ideas I basically realized that, oh, wait, this is an interactive story. I'm not just sitting here telling a story for 45 minutes to an hour and a half. I have to actually deal with the random things that come along. So one of the ways that I do that is I create sort of a choose-your-own-adventure framework. And knowing, of course, that I'm probably going to end up having to improv all of it. <laughs> and you guys are just not going to take the bait. <laughs> or you'll take the wrong bait, or you'll take the bait that wasn't intended. And then I have to find a way. Uh, I will try and create a system where no matter what happens, there are a few possible outcomes so that I can then write uh, either a really uh, emotional or a really funny or a really scary or a really difficult set of things, like build a little bit of flavor text. And some of that ends up being um, useless because you guys have done something completely different, or I can bring it up later. But sometimes it works out really, really well. So you plan like maybe two or three sessions at a time, but do you have an end in mind or is that something that's open-ended? It's fairly open-ended. I don't plan minutia more than a session in advance. Minutia are things like flavor text for a situation or a specific character interaction that is inevitable uh, and like something to tug at heartstrings. Yeah, that sort of thing. And in terms of general story beats, I know that there are certain NPCs in the world that have goals that you guys will be caught up in regardless of anything you do. But how you respond to those, I have no idea. Most of the time, you guys are completely throwing me for a loop or taking an option I hadn't thought of. So is there examples of that that you want to share with us? <laughs> well, I think I mentioned it in the very, very first episode. I was expecting Sanjana and Banked to not get along. Oh, that's so funny. But they ended up laughing and liking each other and walking together. I was like, oh, well, that completely throws away the entire plan I had for Sanjana meeting some underworld contact and getting the job that way. Basically, because she followed Banked, she sort of became a plus one the same way that Brett and Chet became plus ones to Banked. 
and that was the way to write her into that bank thing. Otherwise, Sanjana, who is a mover and a shaker in the underbelly of Bohm's Landing, mm-hmm. would have had somebody who was looking out for her and basically saying, hey, I got wind of something or other, but it's a little too, it's a little too dangerous for the people under my employment. Do you want to take up this job and keep me in mind for any kind of stuff you come across during the course of the work? And I had a whole interaction planned on that. And I also gave Sanjana multiple opportunities to steal the letter from Banked, which she did not take. Yeah. I feel like that's made it really interesting, though, because I do love their dynamic. Mm. I mean, if I had to rank people in order of least evil to most evil, I feel like Bambi's the least evil. Oh, yeah. Greg is the second least evil. <laughs> which is crazy, because it's not how he was designed. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Jeez, Greg ends up just being comic relief or really sad. So weird, because I literally designed him to be like an Oh, let me rephrase that. Well, let's remember to bleep that. I literally designed him to to be a jerk, to be a bad person. Yeah, I mean, bards usually end up that way, though, like trickster with a heart of gold. Uh, It's a trope for a reason. It's just something compelling about it or something fun about playing people that way. Well, I think it's just because the backstory itself, like... Which we will not divulge here. Which we are not going to talk about. You will not get anything from us. Uh, The backstory (laughs) itself, like, as I was reflecting on it, it kind of tore me away from who he was based on, the people he was based on. And I, I kept thinking about, like, well, how would this really affect the way he would react and respond to things? And I think that that has really changed the way I play the character. And I think it will continue to change just because I feel like there's a, maybe a disconnect from the character I had envisioned with this backstory we wrote. Yeah. There's that always ends up happening, especially with bards in my experience. Really? I mean, I just my yeah. playing like in 15 years and I've never played a bard. So yeah, here's the thing. Bards can do so many things that you end up finding out real quick how important those ideals you created the character in the first place with are because you're presented with so many situations where you can do something. Right, yeah. And there's always that urge from the player themselves to sort of like, if I do this, then that will really help the situation we're in. Unconsciously, for some reason, bard players always end up doing something that will improve the position of their party, unless the player themselves is making an active choice to make things difficult for themselves or people. Yeah. I mean, Greg, it's not easy. But <laughs> for everyone who's about to tweet at us or, or, or send us messages, I don't know what the messages are called on TikTok or whatever the hell it is. Um, we have a TikTok? Okay. No, I don't know if we have a Do we have a TikTok? You're the one who would know. I, I, I am the person who manages the social media, but as of yet, we do not have a TikTok, but go on. Okay. Okay. Whatever social media, don't, don't reach out to us and say like, oh yeah, but my bard gets us into like bar fights all the time. Or he always sleeps with somebody's wife and then... And uh, and then that person comes looking for revenge. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like social interactions and scenarios where the bard is really good at this thing. And so the players end up relying on that person. There's always this sort of inherent desire to do a thing that is better for your current situation and improve your current situation. There's, I mean, that's just the way that people are. People always want to make things better for themselves. So in general, because the bard can do so many things, the bard can make so many situations better. They always end up being like this trickster with a heart of gold. It's just, it's an easy trope to fall into. Yeah. 
I'm trying yeah. not to entirely. Like, he's definitely not, like, the charming, like, uh, when I think of a bard, I always think of someone who wants to get into everyone's pants, and that's just not. But your character doesn't even have pants. He doesn't. Um, and he definitely doesn't want to get into pants. He doesn't see the point of pants. Yeah, because pants are unnecessary. Like, pants are not important. Who wears pants? I mean, I'm sure that some of our listeners right now aren't wearing pants. And more power to you. Good point. <laughs> If you have a project or a business that you'd like to promote on our show, please reach out to us at rfadpod at gmail.com. If you don't have a product or a business, but you want to help us anyway, you can share our show with your friends or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. That will really help us grow and reach more people. You can also like, share, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can take part in polls and ask questions if you'd like us to answer those questions in future Wine and Spirits episodes. You can find all of our handles in one convenient place by visiting our website, rfedpod.com. story from one of your old games uh so actually what i'm going to do is i'm going to tell you a story from another game that i'm running now for my for my regular game uh, this is a game that lena also plays in by the way uh just just to, so you understand that i'm not just torturing you <laughs> oh, i'm torturing oh. other people as well <laughs> those poor those poor souls yeah, so this other game, the premise for this uh, setting is that there is no magic, and it is survival mode. I found an alternative rule in the Dungeon Master's Guide that really spoke to me, and it was Keeler's Kit Dependency and also Gritty Realism Mode, where basically a short rest was eight hours and a long rest was a week. And the way that I saw it, it was like, oh, like if there's no magic and... I have gritty realism mode on, combat will become super lethal and they'll have to really think about whether or not they want to do combat. And so basically the whole idea of war, huh, good God, y'all, what is it good for, uh, <laughs> came about. So basically the first session of this game, everybody wakes up after being knocked out cold on a battlefield. On, they're on the losing side of the battlefield. Their job is to survive and escape what I call the vultures, which are basically the battlefield pickers. At the end of a battle, you have a bunch of the, the winning army going around and killing everyone on the other side, making sure they're dead, taking boots, taking loot, that sort of thing from the battlefield. And then you've got like camp followers and people coming around and cutting off fingers and toes and things to get it like jewelry and stuff. Lena's character in that game is a half elf, half dwarf who has a really very strange relationship with her mother, who is the general of the army that they are part of. Huge inferiority complex. And basically, the reason that they lost the battle was Lena didn't get the message to the commander in time that the enemy was upon them. And because of that, everyone was massacred. Jesus. That's a really heavy story. Yeah. And then another character wakes up and because I allowed the, the gnomes specifically to have firearms in this setting and no one else does. And they guard that secret with their lives. Like 
A gnome would sooner blow themselves up than let themselves fall into enemy hands and possibly divulge secrets. And so the other player, who was a gnome gunslinger, they woke up in the middle of the battlefield, and they don't know whether or not all the ordnance on the battlefield has been exploded. So they have to search the battlefield. They can't run away yet. So I created these story reasons for them to have to stay. During that campaign, within two sessions, three people were unconscious and were out for a week. One person was dead, ripped apart by dogs. Uh, wow. Yeah. And they survived only because they figured out my puzzle that I gave them in the very first session. They had a dwarven veteran who was missing a leg, and they could either leave him or take him with them, but they had to carry him. And so I had given them previously an NPC enemy that had a wheelbarrow and a pair of bolt cutters that they were basically going around the battlefield, clipping off like fingers and toes to get at people's rings and boots and putting them into the wheelbarrow. And I think it was Lena actually. And they were like sitting around like, well, we have to, we, we have to rescue as many people as possible. And it was, but he can't walk and I can't carry him. I'm not strong enough. And then at some point Lena just said, do you think we're supposed to use the wheelbarrow? And I, I, my eyes just lit up. <laughs> wow. That's it. That's a, such an intense game. Like you're put in this situation. That's a real world situation, unfortunately for some people. And you have to really use your ingenuity to get out of it. Oh. Right. Uh, and oh gosh, so many, so many things happened during those first couple of sessions that was like, was really close. Like they're like uh, one character did die. They were ripped apart by dogs. Another character was knocked unconscious. And so for the next session, I told them to just make everybody like for them to just make a level two NPC to attack the rest of the party with. And if they won, then that would completely change the story. And it would basically be a story of being sold into slavery after a battle. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, I, like, you're lucky you're not in that game. Let me just read the message from one of the players there quit actually, because my story wasn't high fantasy enough. Like they wanted their magic. Gosh, let me, let me see if I can find this message. Hold on. Leave all of this in. Um, <laughs> So the message was these are like the juicy inner No, it's it's actually one of the more recent um sessions that we did. Yeah, here here it is. Um oh no, it's not here. Hold on. Wait, no. Ah, find it. I pr I swear. I swear I'll find it. Ah, here it is. How's the game going? Response from player. The city is burning to the ground and Jason and I dragged out the other unconscious bodies from the city. Question asker. Good? <laughs> so yeah you think i mean for your game oh boy yeah, never mind i you know what you're definitely super nice <laughs> i'm not trying to butter you up so you don't do this to us yeah it's one of my favorite interactions about my games uh how's the game going the city is burning to the ground and jason and i dragged out the other's unconscious bodies from the city like and there's no magic, so you're basically... There's no magic, so they're literally dragging each other out. Oh, <laughs> boy. Uh, yeah. Well, you got the realism down. Yeah. One of their missions, which they failed, was to light the oil on fire. The, the oil that's used for boiling, uh, boiling and pouring on uh, incoming uh, invaders. Oh, okay. To basically use their explosives to blow that whole thing and start a grease fire that took out part of the gate. They failed in that. So the backup team used a lot more ordnance 
and they set the city on fire. Wow. Yeah. If they had succeeded in their task, I wouldn't have set the city on fire, but they failed, but I needed that gate to be blown for something in the future. So I set the city on fire. There should be consequences for failure. Oh yeah. That's quite a consequence. So does that mean that everyone in the city is now dead? Oh, well, their job was to kill everyone in the city anyway, because there was a whole, it's a whole like uh, gunpowder, can't let secrets fall into enemy hands. So we have to basically wipe the city off the map sort of deal. Yeah. Oh God. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. So I've got all kinds of fun stories, but uh, some of the stories are, are, are more just wacky than anything else. This doesn't seem so wacky and... No, no. I'm, I, I play a, uh, a Kenku bard in another game that I'm in currently right now. Uh, and basically, Kenku can't speak. They have to mimic whatever they hear. So I basically created a soundboard with, like, um, whenever I cast a spell, I use the specific clip of the sound. For example, if I use Healing Word, I use uh, Hamilton's Rise Up, Rise Up. Oh, nice. Yeah. So there's fun things like that. There's also another character that I, I play in a different game that has a lisp basically a liar a persuader and a diplomat but is not good at pretty much any other part of being a rogue um <laughs> so in combat i am super frail i am not terribly effective but out of combat i lie cheat and steal my way to victory <laughs> there's also ooh, the first character i made in fifth edition and L- lena will attest to this is hans he is a dwarven cleric of nike and he is based uh heart and soul off of Dana Carvey's character from Saturday Night Live, Hans and Franz. <laughs> we hit the pump. You up. Oh, God. Listen to me now and hear me later. That is hilarious. All of my cleric spells were like buff spells. My spirit guardians was buff pixies. Um, oh. If you search online and you search for like Tinkerbell jacked. Oh. And it basically shows the muscle bound Tinkerbell. Like those were my spirit guardians. I'm not looking that up right now. I am. I very much am. Uh, That's a thing. That is a thing, viewers, or listeners, rather. Uh, as somebody else showed me at the time, like the fairly odd parents, like super buff fairy. That's what I was thinking when you said that. Yeah. I mean, it's basically the same thing, though, right? Like, effectively, like, those that was my spirit guardians. They were the buff pixies. They were just flying around in a 15-foot radius circle, punching things for me. <laughs> that is fantastic. Yeah. And my armor was a glorified Nike tracksuit. Oh, now I get the Nike reference. Okay, I see. Also, wow, this really is a thing, and I should get off the now. <laughs> now that you're in a dark corner of the internet, yes. <laughs> I mean, I should know better. You should know better than to Google something. (laughs) Google why. So I think that's all we have time for. I just want to thank you, Scott. You're an awesome guest. And listeners, thank you for tuning in to Rocks Fall, Everyone Dies, Wine and Spirits Edition. We'll be back next week with more of our campaign. Bye. Thank you for listening to Rocks Fall, Everyone Dies. It would really help us if you subscribe, share, and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Taylor Calise, additional sound effects courtesy of zapsplat.com, and our thumbnail art is by John Bliss. Find more of his work on Twitter at John Bliss Art. 
Our episodes are produced by me and co-edited by our resident Mushroom Jin, who streams on twitch.tv slash phantomquip. Our social media manager is our favorite surly turtle, Sombra. You can find all of our social media handles and full show notes on our website, rfedpod.com. 